I want to speak up about that right now because I want people to know when they elect me, I'm going to be down there, not a part of the legislature. Their job is to make law. But as the attorney general, you should be a leader in what the law should look like and do because you're the one that has to enforce it and use it for the good of protecting the people and the integrity of government. This is Dare to Defend, a campaign podcast with Alice Martin. She's running for attorney general, and we're right there with her. I'm Brett Janik, and this is episode 13, Questionable Ethics. Alice, the last time we spoke, you were holed up in an Econo Lodge in Conecuh County. <laughs> where, That's correct. Where, where are we catching you today? Today, I'm in Florence, Alabama. I'm home, and I'm home uh, working because I'm, I get the great honor tonight of introducing Jenna Bush Hager at a Chamber of Commerce meeting uh, event fundraiser in Florence, Alabama. Well, that's so exciting. Exci- it is exciting because I served as her uh, her grandfather and her father's uh, federal prosecutor and had the great pleasure um, of meeting uh, her grandfather, uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, and serving as an escort with him uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, after he, of course, had uh, come out of the presidency, and then uh, serving as the U.S. attorney for her father from 2001 to 2009. So I'm delighted to be introducing her this evening. Well, that seems to definitely be the joys of, of campaigning are the and public service are the cool uh, opportunities to meet interesting people. To that end, typically when we conceive of the campaign trail, it's easy to reduce the week's activities down to a few major speeches. But around those events, there's travel, there's staff meetings, there's calls on the road. And those days are also filled with casual conversations with the voters themselves. Has any conversation, any voter story struck you or stuck with you over the last week? I was struck by the central theme when I met last Saturday in Tuscaloosa with the YRs, the Young Republicans Federation. They had their winter meeting and they invited um, some statewide candidates to come and to speak to them. And unlike uh, so often on the trail, when I ask people, what is it about the AG's race that interests you or what are your concerns about the state? I get a lot of, I don't like what Jeff Sessions is doing, or I like what Jeff Sessions is doing. Uh, I like what Trump's doing. What are we going to do about the Russians? You know, what are we going to do about, and then they list national things. And I'll say, well, what about the state? Well, we got to clean up. We got to clean up Washington first. And so that's what they're seeing on the national news. What interested me was that the young Republicans, which are that 18 to 40 year old, uh, to, uh, to a number, everyone I asked that question, they were interested in talking about corruption in Alabama. You know, these are the young faces, the new people that are coming in. They want to run for their county commissions, their, their city councils. They want to be the people that are running for statewide office in, in 10, 20 years. And they care about corruption. They care about good government, integrity in government. They want trust and confidence restored. They don't want to be part of something that, that is seen as seedy or dirty or underhanded. 
And so I really saw the bright faces there and people that were truly engaged and could say, well, what do you think about HB or SB? And they knew the bill numbers and they're watching. And that gets me so excited. You know, it really does that uh, these millennials are going to have an active participation and are going to care and vote on qualified candidates, not just emotional or who they saw the last sign or the last ad for. They're going to they're going to be really informed voters. And that got me excited. You're campaigning while the Alabama legislature is in full swing. And so there's a natural impulse to insert your campaign into the politics of now. And I certainly wanted to discuss the work of the legislature later in this episode. But for you in this campaign, what is the balance between staying engaged during the legislative session and then holding to your core campaign themes that you set out before the campaign started? How do you sort of balance that tension between the politics of now and and the the themes that you want to address regardless well it's actually very easy because my theme has always been focused on the three c's you know defending and preserving the constitution um so you're watching to see are there bills being passed that would infringe upon second amendment rights are there bills being passed that would promote pro-life agenda so i care about watching what are they doing now because i want to speak out uh, second uh, C is, of course, corruption. And they've dropped an omnibus ethics bill, but now they're dropping these little piecemeal bills that are getting a lot of press and a lot of discussion. And I care about those because we call it a bill, but if it gets signed by a governor, it becomes law. And law is usually referred to by prosecutors as our tools. Those are the tools. Those are what I can use to prosecute corruption. And if you're down there making it stronger, I want to say I'm all for that. That's a tool I need. And if you're down there passing a a bill and asking the governor to sign something that makes it weaker and harder for me to prosecute, then you're taking a tool out of my toolbox. I want to speak up about that right now because I want people to know when they elect me, I'm going to be down there, not a part of the legislature. Their job is to make law. But as the attorney general, you should be a leader in what the law should look like and do, because you're the one that has to enforce it and use it for the good of protecting the people and the integrity of government. And then the three, the third C, of course, is community and children's safety. So, again, watching what the legislature does is just interwoven with what the attorney general does. And since I plan to be the attorney general, I'm interested in what they're doing right now. Well, let's dive into those bills that uh, you referenced, the piecemeal ethics bills. One of the bills that uh, has passed the House of Representatives already is HB 317. It's now before the Senate, a bill that, broadly speaking, would exempt economic developers from being categorized as lobbyists under the state ethics law. Maybe speak to our audience uh, generally about what this bill concerns and the issues that you see being raised surrounding this bill. And I think it's important just to give a couple of minutes of background. And when we talk about ethics bills, what are we trying to accomplish? Alabama Code in Section 3625.2 talks about the purposes of an Alabama ethics law. One of the purposes is that there be public confidence in the integrity of government. Nowhere does the ethics law purpose says we're here to make legislators' lives more easy we're here to make your lobbyist life more easy. It says we're here and we want to have an ethics law that protects the public. So I want to make sure that any bill will speak to 
the people and protect them. That's important. So at the big at the session, Del Marsh and McCutcheon held a press conference with the uh, Bentley appointed Attorney General Steve Marshall, and they dropped a bill and they said this is going to be comprehensive ethics reform, and this is what we want in the ethics bill, and we're going to now have a study commission. Uh, which I disagree with having if you've already studied it and these people have been involved in the discussions, which I know they have. And Alice, can I stop you there? Why in general do we need a comprehensive ethics bill? I mean, in 2010, you know, the Republicans come to the state legislature and they do overhaul the ethics law. and, And we've seen, you know, the most powerful person in the state be taken down by that ethics law. Why do we need to reform it if what we already have seems to have been a market improvement from what existed previously. Well, you're right. 2010 was a, a, a better ethics bill than what we had before. And during the investigation and trial of, of Speaker Hubbard, there were questions raised, questions that were answered by the trial court judge uh, and the jury on what is a thing of value, what is a principle, uh, some of those kind of things, what's an official act. And the question was, is this clear enough? And we do want clarity in the law. We do want people to know where the bright yellow lines are on the road um, because we know that good business leaders want to follow the law, as do our legislators. So they are saying there's a lack of clarity. So this bill, in the synopsis, it says the purpose of this is to substantially improve and strengthen and clarify the ethics bill. It will uh, codify the existing law but it's also going to give you some better guardrails by clarifying certain lines of legal and illegal activity. And it does that. So I'm one for saying, let's let's pass this bill. Uh, and what I'll say is that in the fall of or in the summer of 2016, the leadership of the legislature asked Attorney General uh, Luther Strange if he would go out and meet with various entities uh, organizations, associations, uh, your university council, outside attorneys, defense attorneys, people in the private sector, and bring all of those concerns that they were hearing, you know, that they had been hearing for two years, and come in and put together a piece of legislation that McCutcheon and Marsh could then marshal, you know, and push through. And that was done, and that was delivered to them in the fall of 2016. And it didn't go anywhere in 17. It's now been introduced. I've read it. It's essentially 95% of what was done then. So I don't see the need for this study commission except that it will dilute it. And I think the attorney general should be standing and saying, this is what we say is best. And I'm not going to participate in this committee where y'all are going to uh, make additional changes. We've already incorporated 40 plus changes. And this is a strong bill, and I stand with the people for this. Uh, But what's important as we look at today, because they've already said they're going to kick this can down the road. You know, they introduce it. They have a press conference. We're going to do ethics reform. And then the next day they say, oh, and we're going to pass a resolution. We're going to set up a study committee, and we'll look at it next year. I don't think that's – that's inaction to me. That's not action. That's just kicking the can down to next year after an election year. But what they are doing, which I think can undermine this, is this piecemeal with 317. So HB 317, to look at it, 
what it's going to do, it's trying, it's called the economic development. And uh, they have reworked it some. At one time, Steve Marshall said he wasn't for it. Then he said, we worked on some language. We are for it. And there was some debate yesterday in the Senate. And now today, Marsh says he wants to speak to the governor about it. But what the people need to know is that it's hard to understand how the AG is in support of HB 317 as it currently stands because it's in conflict with the omnibus bill. And the key sentence in the bill is that it will exclude uh, part-time economic developers. And so it's going to cause, I think, a great deal of confusion and a loophole because I can put on a hat today and say I'm a part-time developer and I can go and lobby the legislature. But if I'm a full-time developer, I can't do that. Alice, if you could maybe step back and and inform our audience, I mean, why have economic developers been singled out as um, deserving of some sort of exemption from this lobbyist designation? You know, in reading about this bill, we see a lot of discussion about site selectors, economic developers. What is the underlying concern and is that legitimate? And how is that being twisted with this current bill? Well, this language is being solved, it's my understanding, from public records by our um, Secretary of Commerce, Greg Canfield. And Canfield is saying that economic developers, site selectors need this so that they can be competitive uh, with other states. And you have to sort of question that considering the development that has occurred in Alabama in the last few years. And in fact, that is being questioned by a number of uh, senators yesterday. The omnibus bill says that we recognize the vital role of economic development plays in our state. And we want, through that bill, to exempt people that work full-time as economic development professionals from registering as lobbyists. But this exemption does not apply to people that are part-time. So the bill that Marsh and McCutcheon dropped, or Marsh dropped, It does not give an exemption to part-time economic developers, but HB 317 does. So they're in conflict. And I think that there are many of the lawmakers that see this conflict and understand that it would be very easy to just say, I'm a part-time economic developer, so I don't have to register as a lobbyist. And, And here's the significance. If I'm a principal and I want to hire somebody, to have an influence on legislators as to what kind of incentives they might give uh, for a new business to come in. I would look toward a part-time economic developer who I know can go over and lobby that public official without being registered as a lobbyist. And that's a problem. I'm not really sure why the full-time economic developers were like this, but, but I, I would predict we'll see a rise in the people that are part-time versus full-time. And of course, this doesn't even tell us how to define part-time. You know, I, I don't know what that means. So and 30 hours a week, 20 hours a week. And, and you know, uh, people need to remember Canfield uh, with Commerce is the executive that was lobbied by Hubbard. 
You know, he is the executive along with Bentley that's referred to in the indictment. So he's one of the people that probably would like to have this change because he's exactly one of the people that was, uh, you know, named, I should say, as the executive branch member in that indictment. And so presumably uh, part-time economic developers could be the legislators themselves and they could then lobby whether it be other legislators or the or the uh, executive branch. I think they're clarifying that you can't do it if you are a member of the legislature with well, some of their language. But what about uh, but you can't uh, some approach sort them. of others can approach them? What about some sort of revolving door? Does this bill address that where a legislator legislator could leave the legislature and then immediately become a part time economic developer and uh, lobby his former colleagues? I don't recall seeing it addressed in HB 317. I suspect it would tack on to the other revolving door statute that exists. And that's one of the problems when you get carve outs like this is how does it how is it impacted by other bills? And I think it's much cleaner to wait to table all of these and deal with it in a comprehensive reform bill. I think everybody in the audience realizes that being a uh, state legislator is a very difficult, time-consuming job, and that on its own, the pay that legislators receive is not sig- uh, significant enough to support their families. Um, but do you think the public should heed their pleas for additional economic gain? You know, if you look at figures from 2015, Alabama legislatures already made significantly more money than their counterparts in in neighboring states. For instance, in Alabama legislators make $42,000 a year, while in Florida they make 30000 Tennessee they make 20000 Georgia they make 17000 and Mississippi they make $10,000 a year. Um, h- how do we balance this need to recognize the difficulty of, of their job uh, and pre- though prevent uh, sort of these conflicts of interest that arose, whether it be with Speaker Hubbard or others? Well, first I would say that they are well paid. I would say that many Alabamians for three to four months of work would love to get $42,849, and that was the salary in 2015. So remember, this is not a full-time job. We do not have full-time legislators, so they are being paid four times more than Mississippi legislators, about three times more than Georgia, twice as much as Tennessee. They are the highest-paid legislature in the South. So, number one, I would say they are well compensated. Uh, And if they don't feel that they can live off of this alone, they don't have to run for the legislature. Nobody's forcing them to. But if they choose to run, then they should know that this is the level of compensation and then not use that uh, to promote other things, you know, of value coming to them merely because of their legislative position. So uh, this was never meant to be a full-time legislature, uh, and it is public service. So I would just simply say they are well compensated. Well, Alice, you have contacts throughout the state's political ecosystem. Um, Do you see opposition forming against uh, HB 317 and these other piecemeal bills, or are these bills sort of just being rammed through uh, without any meaningful opposition from other groups within state politics? Well, I do see people that are talking out um, uh, in conversation and in the newspaper. You know, HB 317 was 
um, dropped early in the session. And then there was an article written by John Archibald, February the 8th, in which Van Davis, who was the acting attorney general in the Hubbard case, criticized it and said this is a concerted uh, effort to weaken the law. To quote him, he said, elected officials just should not be on the payroll lobbying for executive uh, economic development. Instead of making the ethics laws weaker, they should make it stronger. And that actually caused there to be no movement in that bill for about a month. They did tweak it so that uh, elected officials now are excluded from being the part-time developers. But you still have the problem that part-time is included in here at all. And and for the uh, now for the attorney general to say, well, yeah, we, we think it's OK. It's not in their bill. They must not have thought it was OK before. So what is swaying them to weaken, uh, you know, a bill they said they were standing behind? Are they going to sway with the wind? Somebody has to stand with the people. Well, Alice, I really appreciate your update on all these goings-ons in uh, Montgomery and uh, look forward to talking to you next week once we see how all this plays out. Well, thank you. Well, I hope they will slow down this uh, train to weaken the ethics laws and uh, they will they'll remember it's about the people, you know, that they're there to protect the public. That's what ethics laws are for, to help restore public confidence in the integrity of government. And in light of what we've had in our executive, our judicial and our legislative branch in the last few years, uh, they should take that obligation very serious. Amen. Talk to you soon, Alice. Thank you. Dare to Defend is an 1819 Media production. To learn more about Alice Martin and her campaign for Attorney General, visit her at www.alicemartin.com. I'm Brett Janik, and we'll see you next week from the train.